Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 97 of the Addicted Mind podcast. Today's guest is Robert Imbo, and he is going to talk about his journey through addiction, through suicide attempts, and towards recovery and healing. He's going to talk about his book, Before I Leave You, a book that he originally wrote as a goodbye letter to his loved ones before he decided to end his life. Thankfully, that process actually generated healing for him and his journey out of that darkness. And he's able to talk about it and be frank about how some of his past abuse and trauma impacted him and led to a lot of his pain and how he's able to find his way out. Really enjoyed the interview and really enjoyed talking to Robert and what he's doing. So with that, don't forget, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. And think about joining our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online as well. And please share your message of hope. If you would like to share a message about your own recovery or something that's been inspirational to you like a poem or a quote you can go to the addictedmind.com forward slash hope and right there is the ability for you to record up to two minutes of audio and uh, i really want your voice on the podcast and on the website so that people can hear from others who have walked through addiction, hardship, depression, anxiety, suffering, 
and come out the other side and for people to know that there is hope out there that things do change and things get better so if that's a fit for you i would love it i'm putting them all together to make a collection of those and um, so when people are down they can listen to these they can hear people's voices that things do change things do get better so please if that's a fit for you i'd really appreciate it check it out theaddictedmind.com forward slash hope also i wanted to mention that if you're listening to this podcast and you're in crisis and you're thinking of ending your own life Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-8255. I want you to know that there is a way out. There is hope. Things do change. And we do get better. Okay. With that, let's go and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Robert Imbo, and he is going to talk about his book, Before I Leave You. Robert, you want to introduce yourself? Um, sure. I am Rob Imbo. I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer up in uh, Ottawa, Canada, and uh, and I'm just here to, to, to share my story. And uh, I guess I could just jump right into it. Yeah, um, please do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, in the early stages of building a, uh, a tech company, what's now become a fairly large company, the memory of being raped as an eight-year-old boy resurfaces and send and blindsides me, and I don't know how to react, as you could imagine. And I respond by leaving my wife and uh, turning to drugs and alcohol for the better part of uh, five years, and decide to end my life through that. So think leaving Las Vegas. And and that's very much you know was very deliberate in in many ways, and I hit a number of rock bottoms, then have a few epiphanies and uh, just sort of change. I, I have suicide attempts that I luckily I failed at, and I turned it around. I, I just sort of claw my my way back to a place where I am now, which is just filled with abundant joy. I'm just living a very, very happy life. I, I forget, I usually tend to start off that way because sometimes what I what I say is kind of triggering because I do end up in a really good place. So it's important to remember that. I think that's so important to say too, is just to, that it, it does have a good a good ending, even though it's it's it sounds like a painful journey. Yeah, yeah. Very, very dark times uh, indeed. And, but there, there is a story there, and um, when, and we can get into how how I wrote it. But um, the story I felt, I felt, um, I was encouraged to share because it could and, and has helped people, which I'm very proud of. And so, yeah, that's why I'm here talking to you. <laughs> right? No, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing this because I don't think you are alone in in your story mm-hmm. and in some of this what goes on in people. So. I think when people can listen or who's someone who's gone through this, your story, yeah, it can be, it can be helpful to know you're not alone. So I had a couple of questions as we get started and we kind of build your story up. Tell me a little bit about how this all started because you said you had a memory, but in a way I want to know a little bit before that, what was going on in your life? 
Yeah, well, so I mean, from the outside looking in, life was great. I was a fairly successful, relatively successful entrepreneur. Um, I had a tech company. I checked off all the boxes of happiness, you know, had, you know, the things, the material things. I had, you know, uh, a nice wife and, but happiness still wasn't there. And it's funny because in hindsight, my entire journey professionally, well, my entire journey fully, I think, but very much professionally was an addiction to work because it was a refusal to, to look within. And, and I think I now recognize, actually in writing the book, I, I, it just sort of dawned on me where that addiction to just constantly working, it definitely informed who I became and yeah, just prevented from me to, from looking inside. So from the outside looking in, you know, I'm living my best life, you know, got the stuff, got the people, but internally still searching for happiness and, uh, and happiness just was elusive still. Right. So, you know, when someone looked out at you, they could say, wow, this guy is, has got it all together, Mm -hmm. but there's this inside of you that's hiding from something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm turning to what I would just do. I just work more, right? I turn, I (laughs) was on boards of uh, foundations and, and spending and and losing sight of relationships, you know, just sacrificing human relationship and human connection in order to, to work, you know, just be busy you know, just to, to stay busy. And I wasn't really into, you know, drugs or alcohol back then. I had no real interest in it, but work was my drug of choice back then. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can relate to that because you can hide in that, right? You don't have to sit with yourself. You you know something's not right in a way, in a subconscious way maybe, but you're like, hey, this is how you get better. You You pursue, you be successful, you push yourself, you take it to the next level, but you don't stop and ever contemplate your own being. Right. Yeah. We make these leaps, right? You're like, well, I think this car will make me happier or that house will make me happier. And then you're in that house and you're like, okay, well, it's not here. Well, let's look at the other house. Let's go deeper into debt. (laughs) Let's go, let's go reach for that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people go through that too. It's like this constant pursuit to try and feel worthy. Yeah, exactly. Feeling worthy is a, is a big one. And I mean, just in that, if you do realize some success, what do you do with it if you don't feel worthy? And you, people are telling you how great you are and how nice you are. And you know, what do you do with that? How do you integrate the, the good along with the bad? Yeah. Um, and that was, that was a challenge in itself. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and I think, you know, also, I think what's unique about this too is that when you're successful on the outside, people don't have a lot of sympathy for the pain on the inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a that's a solid point. Well, it's like, well, you have all this stuff, so I don't know what you're unhappy about. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So tell me a little bit as we get going. So you're working. You're successful. You're moving forward. You're 
by all intensive purposes, you're at a great place, right? And then something happens. Yeah, and and I think what ended up happening is because I was a place in comfort, I did, you know, love the wife I was with, and we were, you know, thinking next up with kids, and so we were there, and it, I think it just forces contemplation, and that's when it just sort of. I was just reading a book one night, and it just took me by tidal wave. And, you know, a blurry photograph became a full length 4K motion picture, you know, with, with sounds and smells and feelings. And like, it, it was unbelievable. It left, it left me catatonic that night for probably 48 hours. I didn't know what to do. So, yeah. So, and I think it was a level of comfort and not my body not knowing what to do with it. And I think my conscience just says, well, we have to deal with this, you know, this thing that happened when you were eight. Here's what, here's what we have to deal with. So it came flooding back to you in an overwhelming way. Yeah, just like a truck. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so you're left there in this state. What do you do with that? Well, I had no idea what to do with it. And, and I, I didn't want to do anything with it. I refused to go to therapy. I let my marriage crumble. I, you know, I, I leave my wife, and it just so happens that I was invited to go to Las Vegas within the next two weeks. I'd introduced the couple, and you know, they were insistent. Well, he was insistent that I, that I went for a bachelor party, and uh, and never having wanting to go, you know, not really a partier, but um, went on that trip and uh, discovered how much I like ecstasy. Right. <laughs> Right. Okay. And because life is good. Life is great with ecstasy, you know, and it, it went from me being kind of in the back, you know, nursing uh, a drink for the night to just going full fledged. So did you find yourself, you know, this, this image of abuse kind of comes back to you in this overwhelming way, which happens. Sometimes we can push, push our own trauma away that we lose kind of conscious awareness of it. And then for whatever reason, it comes into our memory and it can be overwhelming. So how did you start to push this back, I guess? You know, you're trying to push it back into the unconscious. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I got to get rid of this. Yeah, it, and now it's attached to me, very visible and attached to me and I'm trying to shake it off, but it's, you know, it's it's tethered. And I think, like, in hindsight, looking at it, the the drugs themselves, like, a, a, there was a lot of ecstasy, and then it turned into cocaine, and, and and the social alcoholic, we're just, we're just really, really getting, just partying as much as I can. In those moments, I believe, were also helpful, ultimately, just because I was so open and so loving, because those more receptors were being targeted by the drug of themselves. So it's manufactured very much, but there is evidence that support MDMA is, you know, therapeutic. So I think that was a part of the healing. Not that I'm advocating going out and doing it, but right, MDMA, yeah. I think it was a part of the healing. But in doing so much of it and abusing it, I lost a sense of what was up. Just, I don't know, I, because it, it affects your your love and hate and, and confidence where I didn't know what I loved right. or hated anymore. Right, yeah. And I question everything I, I would because I don't know. So at work, jumping back to work, I'm becoming less and less effective. I'm going from wanting to speak to graduating classes in, in colleges to not being able to run a 12-person meeting in my own company. So I'm just, I've lost my confidence right. and, and I, you know, I'm struggling to, to speak in those moments. So this was a huge existential crisis. Like you couldn't even function in your life anymore. No, no, no. Uh, and I, 
I let go uh, of of it all. It, it was it was all consuming. So it went from you know Thursday to Monday, probably being you know drunk and high, to working abominable hours. <laughs> you know, just work from six to you know ten at night type thing. So going back to that life of distraction. Right, right. But it didn't work. It didn't work. And I thought I was hiding it really well at work. <laughs> uh, I don't think my, my, my partners, you know, won't agree. And it soon became real. I, I, I soon realized that I wasn't. So how long did that kind of go on? You, you, you had this memory and it comes back to you and it, and it kind of invades your space, so to speak, your, mm-hmm. your being, and it's overwhelming. And you start finding yourself trying to find these ways to get rid of it, push it away, distract, all that stuff. So how long was that? And how long did, yeah, how long did that process last for you? Well, I mean, the, the total, you know, dissension, I would call it, uh, would be about four years. I think the first year or so, um, I'm leaving my wife, I'm partying. And I have two partners who were young and just like uh, incredibly hardworking, but they also liked parties as well. Um, not, you know, the same way I party as partying. And I, I would, you know, party with them, just go right. out celebratory drinks. That's so, And then our celebratory drinks on Thursday, uh, when we parted ways Thursday night, I would just sort of continue, you know, with, you know, a bender of some sort with, with other people. And so that the company was still skyrocketing and we're doing well at work and, and getting more in then. So meanwhile, you're, you're falling apart on the inside, but on the outside, things are going well. And they look well. They look very well. Yeah. Yeah. We're meeting with yeah, investors back at those times. And, you know, it's just skyrocketing, hiring a lot right. of people, getting a lot of business and yeah, just growing exponentially. So yeah, it's just, a, it's another successful win from materialistic win right, from the right. outside and then actually getting worse <laughs> on the inside. So tell me ab- about where did you end up at that point? Like this, you're, you're getting all this outside success. You're falling apart on the inside. You're using all kinds of drugs and alcohol and sex and stuff to distract yourself or get rid of these feelings. Um, what kind of happened? Well, I mean, I was just going back and forth. Uh, it was just escalating uh, all of the partying. Uh, I met uh, a girl as well, uh, a woman that I started dating and kind of drug her down with me. And But I was just resolute on ending my life. And I, I shared that with her and she didn't know what to do with it. Um, and she was always around. So we, we partied a lot, got along really well. And uh, after... Jeez, I guess a year and a half of us dating, I decided that, okay, why would I have a girlfriend? This is ridiculous. So break up with her and she, instead of responding, and I cheat on her the week before I break up with her and she finds out. So I burned that bridge um, very deliberately. And she responds with love. She just says, you know, you, and she sends me a very, very long letter and a text message, just a series of text messages like, you know what, you know, you drug me down and I know you're going down. I know you're struggling, but I want you to know that you are a drug addict and all caps. And hearing it was so devastating. You know, I definitely didn't acknowledge that. I never thought that really. I was just like, listen, I'm just partying. And, you know, I'm the life of the party, <laughs> you know, friends are coming out. I'm creating this life context that have all these, you know, hangers on and party people. And that's how I know them in the, in that scene. 
and and she sort of comes along. It's like you're you're you know you're definitely a drug addict. You may be you know an alcoholic. It's it's not going to turn out well. And I was just blown away how she just responded with you know with with love. Kind of threw it right back at you and and put it in your face. Yeah. And to and to to make the moment clear, I was literally in the back seat of my friend's car, probably about eleven a.m. after partying all night in, a, in an all night rave or just an after hours rave. We we're still raving, and I was completely still high, and just reading this and just sort of being, you know, humiliated and devastated and embarrassed, and you know, coming down just just all it, it was just great timing in terms of efficacy just sort of it hit me really really hard and the fact that she's responding with with love and she wasn't trying to be aggressive or vicious or anything she's just a little legitimately concerned you can see it now as as the moment that uh was actually a real gift to you it was yeah yeah there was a series of wonderful wonderful turnarounds as dark as sometimes got there was really encouraging turnarounds like but that was one of them i decided to that i needed to clear my head so i decided to go driving and i ended up going past her she was living she this is i guess weeks later she she moved to another city about six hours away and i decided to go for a a drive and she asked for me to stop by so i go and i stop by and she's like can i come with you like oh okay uh, you know, kind of as friends. And we drove for six days. So we drove down to Walden. And uh, I had this uh, enormous reverence for Thoreau, uh, you know, back from high school that a, a friend turned me on to, um, on civil disobedience in Walden. So, yeah. And uh, so I went there and it, it was swimming in that, that, that lake was, I was just like, you know what, I, I don't really want to die. And, um, I, you know, I described that in the book where I apologize to the reader, <laughs> um, you know, spoiler, spoiler alert, um, I don't kill myself. And, uh, and I, I just said, you know what, and I'm going to figure this out. And, uh, and that was a big turning point. Yeah. To, to say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I want to go back a little bit though, and talk a little bit about how you came to the decision that you did want to end your life. And you said this, I'm done. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think people need to understand how that can work when we're we're feeling so low. It was really leaving my wife, who I adored at the time, and accepting who I was, and I wasn't a good person. And and I think the the memory, even though it wasn't fully repressed, you know, because I think it was there. I knew, you know, someone was in that room. I knew something happened. It definitely informed who I was and how I treated people. So when I realized why, it was just so much sadness and so much physical pain. You know, I was nauseous all the time. And uh, death really was so appealing. It was just sort of like, I can let go of all this stuff um, and let go of not only what I have to see in my mind of what happened to that little boy and deal with that, deal with who I became, really looking at, you know, I, I, I wasn't someone I love and respect in those times. And I am now, and I, I, I actually write it down every single morning. But back then, I just sort of, I really, you know, I, I suck. I know I'm really not a good human, uh, which just exacerbates everything else. And, and my only way out, and 
I never really believed much in therapy. I probably wouldn't be here without it. But uh, back then, I didn't think, what does talking about it, how will that help? And when I actually did, I I'm just worthless. I mean, yeah, I'm just so worthless. Talking about it is not going to change that. Yeah, exactly. And who's going to listen? And, you know, they're just going to sit and see, you know, like I have everything. Oh, you know, little rich boy is not, isn't, doesn't want uh, to deal with his past. You know, he's just whining, uh, which is what, what it sounds like. Yeah. But the, the wilderness is a big, big piece. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. And, and, and a lot of times when we're feeling so low, I think death can, you know, the idea of ending your life can feel like, a good option Mm -hmm. at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, because you're just in pain. Like in so many ways, you're just in pain and your life is pain. Like everything, the volume turns down to everything in your life because you're too busy processing this this big piece. So how did you start to pull out of that? Like how, how did you start to walk out of that darkness and that hopelessness and that worthlessness? There's so many so many different ways it took it took a lot of steps i wrote this is this is the big thing about the the book itself is i started writing a secret goodbye it, uh, to the people i loved to explain what was going on in writing everything like in those thoughts and feelings in those moments like after i my my first attempt i started i just turned to writing i'm like this i'm just to describe it so people are not blindsided when i die that's and that's you know hence the name of the book right it's before i leave you so it's the things to do before i leave and the writing itself became solace it became therapy and without being vulnerable right so i i, I definitely did not have the confidence to go you know to a group or a, a program just because i would have to be way too vulnerable and in my mind being vulnerable is that 8 year old right right so yeah, I mean, and and that, if the writing itself, I decided to keep writing because it felt good to write. You know, the I, how do I put it? The the only the pages knew my words, and only the words knew my feelings. So I really wanted to to get it out, and then it turned into a long apology, and I realized why am I apologizing? And uh, and then I eventually shared it, you know, with uh, the girlfriend I, I talked about. Now my wife, by the way. Oh wow, wow! And, it, and even though I didn't have um i didn't do a 12-step program i checked all the boxes and i probably did it much longer and painfully much more painfully but with my wife you know we became we went from being each other's enablers to each other's cheerleaders and she led the way she was so we have to stop this and we have to like get out of this and she's like Let's try meditation and i was like what's this garbage and then i turned into and, and one five-minute session which i describe in detail in the book it's like just pivots me into this world of, you know, spirituality and, and, you know, meditation was, it became from a utilitarian thing to something that I really wanted to, a part of my life and practicing Buddhist and circling back, you know, I, you know, I was a Catholic and then maybe an angry atheist, which some people would describe me. And then now kind of open to everything and everything, you know, living Buddha, living, living Christ type thing. I study nutrition. I lose a bunch of weight to get off my ass and go exercise. And yeah, so there's no one thing. It was just several things and several steps forward. And I joke, we, we would take one step forward and then we'd have five steps back. But we take another step forward and maybe this time only four steps back. And then we, and then we eventually start gaining momentum where we're, we're only moving forward. 
I was thinking as you were talking about, and I was listening to you as you started to write your book before I leave you, that it was almost like the first moment you began to be a little vulnerable with yourself in a way that you needed that. So much. Like William James says, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking when I can write it down. Because a lot of us, we don't know what's in there. Um, and one, one of my therapy practices was to write a letter to that eight-year-old boy with my right hand in cursive and write a letter responding from the perspective of that eight-year-old with my left hand. And that's the most heartbreaking, most difficult thing I've ever had to do because it, the eight-year-old has something to say that you may not be ready to hear. And, and it's shocking. Like it's, it's silly doing it, you know, but once you get into it and you're like, oh my God, you know, I didn't know that little boy's in there. And we all have that. We, we all have those separate little people in our, in our, in our psyche. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, things like that allow us to access the parts of our being that we may have protected ourselves from in a way. And that child part of us needs that compassion and understanding to be able to heal. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly. It. And the feeling of going circling back to worthiness, like, you know, he's, he was worthy of much more worthy of being protected and worthy of that not happening, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely. And then it sounds like you started to build on that step by step by step by step, yeah. slowly one thing mm -hmm. after the other. Yeah. And we, we were pretty much good. I had asked, you know, my, uh, we weren't dating, but I asked uh, my ex-girlfriend to marry me. And she said, yeah, uh -huh. we're selling, the, as long as you sell the pallet house, we're going to move into the suburbs, we're going to buy, you know, a regular house and, and we're just going to get away from this party lifestyle. And we did that for about a year and a half, but we'd still have, you know, the parties here and we'd still slip and that's okay. We forgave ourselves. And then one night or well, one morning rather, she just turned to me and she said, uh, and we had gotten, you know, married and all this. And she's, uh, she said, well, I think I'm pregnant. And I just said, okay, wow, zero tolerance then we can't slip. There's no more slipping. And then we didn't. <laughs> it's been four years. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. And it and it sounds like uh, you were able to take this experience and now share it. Yeah, yeah. When, well, yeah. When it, in the midst of writing that, yeah, I shared my secret goodbye with with my wife, and she said, "You know, this can help a lot of people." And you know, to to her credit, no, my wife's a very private person, <laughs> and so right, she was right. just like, "Yeah, but it's more important that the story get out there." So. Yeah, so it's been it's been really really encouraging since. And there's a lot of freedom once you hear your own story, I guess, for yourself and you walk through your story, there's freedom on the other side because there's no more running. There is no <laughs> no there there isn't. And there's there's just me, the authentic me that I now can be, which I I couldn't have been, you know, the most of my life, probably 40 years of my life I couldn't be really really me and now I can. And, you know, people are responding with love of the best kind. It, it's been overwhelming. And once you are, once you do share this, this vulnerability, people share it with you. And that's a, that's a, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. Once we can open ourselves up to that, it also opens up other people to be able to, to meet us too. And we get to share that journey together. Yeah. 
And we, yeah, we, we share what worked for you, you know, in healing, what worked for, what didn't work, what did work, you know, ideas for more. Um, yeah, it turns into a great conversation on healing. Wow. And so now you published your book and you, and you put it out there and you're going forward with that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. I've been half of all the proceeds are going to, um, uh, treatment center for, uh, for, uh, childhood abuse. And that's been great. I'm, I'm also part of that men's group, you know, something that I was prescribed nine years earlier. I finally joined the men's group, which has been amazing. I, I'm just like kicking myself for not, not doing it sooner. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, plus it's men, right? So they all lean back on humor. So it's just, it's more, you know, you know, often fun and we're able to, to you know, just to, to see each other for who we are, which is, is, is incredible. It's indescribable. And living in that authenticity and and being able to be yourself and bring yourself and be accepted and and I guess reflected back your worthiness, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I describe it as a safe place, right? You're, this, you have a safe place to to be yourself, no judgment, you know, only love and support. So yeah, it's been it's taught me so much. Well, wow. I, I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. And I really appreciate your courage to put this out there for, for people to hear your story because I know there's so many people out there that can relate and need to hear it. And so I appreciate your courage to do that. What would you want to say to someone out there who's listening? What would you want to tell them? And maybe they are in that space. <laughs> um, there, there's not one thing, but one, well, I'm going to say two things. Everything changes. We can rely on change. So however dark it is now, light is coming. And that's just life. This is just how life, right? This too shall pass. It will always pass. So savor the good stuff. Hold on during the, the, the dark stuff. Second, I got this piece of advice recently and I, I really love it. Just treat yourself as if you're the person that you love and have to take care of. And, you know, if, if my daughter is in the, in the kitchen and drops a glass and it crashes. I'm rushing by her side. I'm like, are you okay? Okay, everything's good. Okay, you're not cut. Okay, pick you up. I love you. I'll go clean this up. If I drop a glass, ugh, you idiot. Right. What does that sound like? I'm like that's, that's not right. I love me. I, I want to make sure I'm okay. You know, look down, is there blood? Right. <laughs> um, so I, I think oftentimes we, we don't treat each other's like the, the or treat ourselves like the person we love most and we should and you know it's not an overnight thing but i think it's it's a great thing to practice I, and i think what you're saying is is so right on it's it's practice yes. it takes time mm-hmm. it's continuous slow effort to love ourselves yeah, and it's tiny, and it could be tiny things, you know. I often joke that cinnamon changed my life because I stopped using sugar in my coffee and replaced it with cinnamons, and that small habit, you know, snowballed into more. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, Robert, I I want to just thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Where can people get more information if they want to find out more about you or contact you? How can they find you? Well, first, thank you, Dwayne. Thank you for your for your podcast. I'm so glad it sort of came into my orbit. It's uh, it's for what you do. This is amazing. It's you're doing really good work. Oh, thank you. And we spoke about before we recorded. We spoke about that one that I'm really going to get into. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> 
I bought the domain name beforeleaveyou.com because not everyone can spell my name. So beforeleaveyou.com, you could see, you can get access to my book and, and, and other works. There's also a list of every single distress center in North America if you do need it. I mean, we have Google, but I put it all in one place just to, just to make sure. That's awesome. And, uh, and uh, there's a contact form if you want to reach out. I'm, 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 I've been responding to everybody, so it's been really great. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 97. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind, think about sharing it with a friend or rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and I really appreciate it. And um, join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, please be safe during this challenging time. And uh, yeah, I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.